KBOO Community Radio is proud to co-sponsor the screening of the film Hippie Family Values on Saturday, March 9th at 2 p.m. at Darkside Cinema in Corvallis. Filmed over a period of 10 years at a remote communal ranch in New Mexico, Hippie Family Values is an intimate chronicle of a handful of hippie elders along with their adult children and grandkids. The director will be in attendance. Again, that's the screening of the film Hippie Family Values on Saturday, March 9th at 2 p.m. at Darkside Cinema. 215 Southwest 4th Street in Corvallis, Oregon. More information can be found at kboo.fm on the right side of the homepage under Community Events. This is KBOO Portland. It's 6 o'clock. Time for Keeping Democracy Alive with Burt Cohen. Tonight is Justin Trudeau in the pocket of big oil with Canadian author Judith Deutsch. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. What we've really seen is a financial sector that's gotten out of hand. There's much too much of a role in this country. What Putin is trying to do and what Trump is trying to do is undermine faith in our government. An absolute typhoon of terror against African Americans. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. I speak tonight for the dignity of man. Those of us in LBJ's old country, those of us in the lower 50 south of Canada have often looked longingly in recent years at our northern neighbor for sanity in the face of the out-and-out racist, plutocratic, authoritarian, just plain nuts presidency we are now forced to carry. Elected in 2015, Canada's new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, promised a fresh approach to politics one that was based on openness, decency, and liberalism. Not only now is he involved in a scandal involving accusations of backroom deal-making and bullying tactics, all to support a Canadian company accused of bribing the Libyan government when it was run by the dictator Muammar al-Qaddafi, but has demonstrated fealty to the power of big oil internationally is adding to a spreading outrage. Shachi Curl, executive director of a nonprofit polling firm based in Vancouver, observed recently that shine of uh, Trudeau is not dented or scratched. It's been completely scuffed. But what's being done by Trudeau is hardly limited to domestic Canadian matters. Instead of delivering new sunny ways, as promised, it seems Trudeau remains firmly dug into a policy of climate injustice and militarization and international big oil overall, which of course affects the entire planet. After his sunny rhetoric, it seems his actual policies adversely affect human rights, democracy, and of course, global warming. In an article in Counterpunch entitled Bolsonaro, Trudeau et al., Exterminators in Chief, our guest Judith Deutsch describes his governing style as a, quote, grandiose omnipotence at work. Great. Just what the world needs. Judy Deutsch is a psychoanalyst and on faculty of Toronto Psychoanalytic Institute. She's a member of Independent Jewish Voices and past president of Science for Peace and is active with Socialist Project. She's written a number of articles published on Counterpunch and also in Canadian Dimension magazine. Judith Deutsch, thank you so much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Those of us who try to follow international news are certainly aware of the American-led effort to oust the democratically elected president and government of Venezuela and instead install a government of our choosing. Boy, this sounds like a broken record. Given the image Trudeau has projected to Americans, we might be surprised at the role of the Canadian government. Let's start off looking at the reality of Trudeau's position regarding Venezuela. Please share that with us and tell us why Canada is doing what it is there. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Well, Canada has um, long long before Trudeau has had, um, you know, I, I guess what um, one person here has, has labeled the Trudeau doctrine um, comparable in a way to the Monroe doctrine, but, uh, you know, has had um, kind of covert imperialistic uh, interests in many Latin American countries, you know, both in terms of their natural resources and, and also um, banking, you know, definitely, uh, you know, um, banking interests and, and uh, monopolistic intentions. But um, the, specifically in terms of uh, Trudeau, you know, for a couple of uh, the last year or two, they have really have cultivated a relationship with uh, Guaido, the person who um, yes. has assumed um, the uh, pseudo-leadership there, you know, the yeah. uh, kind of a, a coup d'etat that mm-hmm. hasn't been, at least so far, hasn't been fully successful in, in ousting Maduro. Um, but, uh, you know, the Canadian interests in, in um, Venezuela, I think, are comparable to, you, you know, to what John Bolton talked about, which is the, you know, the main motivation is, is oil, but sure, certainly also yeah. other resources. Um, Canada is the leading country, you know, in the world in terms of... Um, uh, being the center for mining, um, uh, mining investments um, through the Toronto and Vancouver stock exchanges. So, you know, the the interests are primarily, um, you know, financial in that sense. And uh, you know, unfortunately, they've, the, you know, there's the history again of of their backing, you, you know, uh, overthrow of of um, democratic governments, democratically elected. Progressive governments like uh, certainly Haiti, Haiti, they've had a you know a terrible uh, record there, mm-hmm. and um, you know the um, mining and and supporting the governments of, of uh, Guatemala and Honduras. Oh, you know, right before the coup in uh, Honduras that overthrew Zelaya, yes. um, about a month before, you know, Canadian um, the f- foreign affairs were were. Uh, um, involved with um, trying to to um, stop a, an amendment in in the uh, or a law in, in Honduras that would have put a moratorium on mining. So uh, you know they've long been involved in these kinds of um, under undercover uh, you know uh, actions in in these uh, governments. Uh. So, uh, resource extraction uber alles, I see. Mm-hmm, that's right. <laughs> uh, that's right. What, what is the Lima Group, which was mentioned in your article, and what is Liberal Democratic Canada's relationship with them? Well, that's, um, that, that's very interesting. It's, it's, it's very new, this Lima Group, as far as I understand. It just ar- um, arose as a coalition in response to the, um, the uh, you know, at the beginning of this year in January, to um, you know, to support Guaido and, and the the uh, overthrow of of um, Maduro, uh, uh, Maduro, Venezuelan yeah. government. But uh, interestingly, all the other um, countries involved in it are are mainly you know the Latin American countries. Um, the United States isn't, as far as I know, part of the Lima Group. It includes Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Costa Rica, um, Honduras, and um, uh, some of the other countries. You know, there's been what what people call there was a pink wave in many Latin American right. countries following decades of of horrendous um, military dictatorships. So that you know, there the governments recently in um, particularly Brazil, Argentina, uh, long-term in Colombia, certainly, but, um, you know, have been, uh, you know, there was a, a sure. swing to, to the left. you know, to, to much more progressive yeah. governments, but these uh, other, uh, these alliances are with, you know, the, you know, kind of outright Dictatorships, you know, yes. mil- you know, that are heavily militarized and and um, 
you know, horrible policies towards indigenous oh, indigenous yeah. uh, people and, and very, uh, you know, oriented towards resource extraction, yeah, um, oil, oil, and uh, in Brazil now it's, uh, oh, yeah. it's um, uh, for palm, you know, palm, palm plantations for biofuels. Oh, and, right. Um, you were mentioning Bolsonaro that perhaps people aren't so aware of who he is. I was just going to ask that. Yes, further south of Venezuela, of course, is Brazil, huge, mm-hmm. huge landmass, which has its own version of authoritarianism. Exactly. Newly installed yeah. military dictator, and you say your government is in league with that new regime. Well, yes, it's really shocking. I mean, you know, at least it's, you know, what's shocking is is that it's so overt. You know, because you know Canada has aligned with. Um, you know, awful regimes, you know, over time, characteristically, to protect its own, you know, um, industries, mining, and so on. But but this is, uh, you know, certainly really overt. What? Bolsonaro is, yes. is really quite frightening. Um, Tell us why, please. Not everybody knows about Bolsonaro. Okay. Well, he was, he, he's been in the Brazilian government for many years, and, and, um, you know these uh, governments have have many many of the people in the right wing military um, juntas in in Latin America trained uh, at the School of the Americas in in the United States. So there's direct military connections. Bolsonaro has long been, um, uh, you know, a very pro military, pro dictatorship. Um, um, member in his government in in their uh, in their Congress, um, but his rise to power was uh, was was really very recent. But he's um, again, you know, he's comparable to uh, Duterte and and uh, oh, you know and, and, and views um, uh, or, you know much of what what comes from Trump too. Um, but uh, you know. Um, you know, frankly, very, very pro-military. He has a particular um, hostility towards, uh, you know, gay people, homosexual and, and indigenous. He's labeled already the landless peasant movement there, um, the, you know, terrorists. They've been around for years, you know, a, a very, um, you know, a highly... Um, you know, a very fine, fine group of people who, you know, very impoverished, who, are, who uh, are wanting land for farming, of course. But one of the things that he's uh, has done, and I think this is comparable to Trudeau too, is that because of their the primacy of of resource and and um, and wealth and capital, right. you know, that he's um, opening up. It wants to open up the Amazon rainforest to, uh, you know, to deforestation to create, um, uh, you know, uh, palm palm oil plantations, um, you know, as a bio as a biofuel, you know, and it, you know, it's it's hard to imagine, you know, these any anything that are more destructive, you know. Um, in terms of the climate situation, I mean, the Amazon and the boreal forests here in Canada have been called the lungs of the earth, and and uh, you know because they provide so much of the oxygen. You know, mm-hmm. so this is, is really really terrible. And then and then of course involved in that in both countries is the uh, you know the what will happen to all the inhabitants, particularly the indigenous people. In both areas, you know, we know in Canada that as soon as they started the uh, tar sands extraction here in the, you know, in no. the boreal forest in Alberta, is that uh, there were terrible health effects in the indigenous community there because of the, uh, you know, the kinds of, of the toxicity, the contamination of the water, and so there were very unusual forms of cancer. And uh, the government response was to fire the doctor <laughs> who who uh. was investigating and reporting all of that. Um, so, <laughs> nothing like liberal, open Canada. How different from America? 
Well, exactly. oh my goodness. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. We need everybody to participate in that effort. And our guest today is uh, Judith Deutsch, who has written a piece in Counterpunch entitled Bolsonaro, Trudeau et al., Exterminators in Chief. And, uh, you know, the Tar Sands Project, we, we heard about that oh, a number of years ago. Americans, let's face it, have very short memories. But that's out west in, in Alberta. And it, the, the right wing, which I think is fairly strong out in Alberta, uh, was very much in favor of it because oil and jobs. And yet uh, the Tar Sands are certainly known to be one of the dirtiest possible ways of, of extracting oil. And then, uh, you know, it's been part of the, uh, the American uh, indigenous people fighting against the, uh, the pipeline. That's bringing down tar sands oil. It's a big deal. So w- w- what is happening with tar sands? Is that, uh, tell us about what's happening with that and Trudeau's position on that. Okay, well, it's, it's uh, <laughs> again, a fascinating and important issue. Um, it's interesting because many years ago, I would say at least 10 years ago, I saw there was a, quite a good article in the New York Times, extensive article on the tar sands in which they had a, a photograph and they called it a moonscape. Uh. And, and so they were reporting on it unusually, much more critically than anything that I was seeing here in Canada um, but the the tar sands are one of the d- dirtiest um, yes. forms of of, um, of fossil fuel because uh, um, there the the extraction process and the refine refining process in themselves require a tremendous amount of energy. In fact, at one point uh, they were considering putting in nuclear reactors <laughs> in uh, Alberta. So that for extracting the tar sands, yeah. you know, because so <laughs> <laughs> they need so much energy. Enough energy for another, but the other, uh, the other part uh, is uh, that it requires, I think, uh, I think this is correct, but five barrels of oil of water to one barrel of of um, oil for extraction, and this is, of course, at a time of decreasing water, you know, um, because of, of droughts and so on. But the tar sands, um, it's, it has, so far has been really unstoppable, and, and it's very, I mean, in every single way, it's, it's uh, you, you know, it's, it's irrational, except for, um, except for, for profit, you know, because the, the royalties are about the lowest. So the, you know, it's not actually... Um, you know that much a, a benefit for people in Alberta or for Canada. Like you know, there were studies that compared the royalties in um, I can't remember. I think it was Norway or Finland from their That's oil so. extraction to the, right. in Canada. And in Canada, it's very, it's very very low. You know, the tax rate is very low. Um, and also, it's uh, you know the um, the companies involved are are uh, multinational, so so much of the profit goes, sure. you know, to co- Canadian corporations as well as as corporations from from other countries. So even economically, you know, it's 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 uh, quite dishonest and deceptive, you know, to to talk about that. The the working conditions are are mm-hmm. are uh, people are very highly paid there. But the very, uh, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's kind of um, a transient, very transient. Sure. You know, people come there, get you know, earn a lot of money, and then they leave, and it's uh, led to quite a lot of, um, you know, Disease. degradation and ruin of mm-hmm. of um, the major the major town there. But also, it's been, of course, devastating to the indigenous people. Yeah, sure. Um, and w- what has Trudeau's position been on that? Young uh, Trudeau? Trudeau has, been, has maintained the, the you know, neoliberal line that it's mm. good for jobs and it's good for the economy. And that's been his line, you know, in terms of the pipelines and shipping and all that kind of stuff. In fact, his uh, the finance minister from the, the government, you know, in, in terms of talking about the Trans Mountain um, 
pipeline says that it's of vital interest to Canada and to Canadians, and that uh, you know you don't want to put jobs at risk, which is kind of the line they always have. Right. And, and uh, and they're just insisting that these pipelines, you know, w- w- will be built. And they've bought, you know, they um, bought one hoping to sell, you know, to to resell it. Um, but they're, you know, they're uh, the National Energy Board, and, and you know, they're all, you know, just rubber stamping that. In fact, there's a the new premier, and she's not so new of in Alberta, is from the so-called left-leaning party here, the oh. New Democratic Party, and uh-huh. she's also, you know, although she portrays herself as, as balancing environment and climate change and the economy, she's been solidly for, you know, supporter of the, the tar sands. And, you know, another interesting thing about it is, um, you, you know, under the Carter Doctrine, Jimmy Carter, you know, in terms of America's uh, security needs and its um, its right to you know to to do anything basically um, for its own security. Uh-huh. Plus, plus the uh, NAFTA, you know, the trade deals. It's a you know U.S. and has you know claims a right to the tar sands oil because of its need for you know for military security. So. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> You know, it's it's the military and and the climate crisis are all, you know, very interconnected. And unfortunately, that connection is not, uh, you know, is is really ignored. And the the health effects. It's it's the same old story here and there. It seems like, and you know, a lot of people have looked to Canada as like. You know, if it gets real bad here, I'm moving to Canada. You, you yeah, know, yeah. one hears that fairly often. But I guess, you know, it's a number of different uh, nations within Canada. And speaking of nations, uh, indigenous rights, there's a lot more indigenous people in Canada percentage-wise, at least in terms of the, the land mass uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the population uh, than here in the uh, uh, United States. And I will tell you, back in 1991, when I was first elected to the New Hampshire State Senate, one of my first pieces of legislation was to call for stopping cooperation from New Hampshire with Hydro-Quebec uh, with regard to its James Bay II project, which disregarded the rights of indigenous Cree and Inuit. And, of course, the Canadian government sent officials to the New Hampshire State Senate, and my effort was what a surprise, defeated. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, that was going to cause a tremendous environmental uh, damage, this mm-hmm. huge project. I refresh my memory. I think that was that, that did not go forward, but, but I'm not sure. Uh, perhaps you can update me with regard to that and the uh, young, uh, I keep almost saying Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, that was his father, mm-hmm. uh, Tell us about uh, 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 how uh, what the status of, of that is right now. Is, is was Trudeau in favor of that? Did it get done? What is the status of that? Because I, I care about indigenous well, people. Uh, um, I, I, um, I, I came up here to Canada to live after that, but I have so I'm, I'm you know not completely an expert, but I know that the James there was a James Bay hydroelectric. Yes. Um, project and and um, I think New York also in New York that they also uh, had they did pull out were That's opposed right. to it yeah um, right they did but as as far as I know of course it you know it went through in fact uh, you know it was repeated in, in um, uh, other uh, without the ability you know constructing of other hydro dams um, it's really again quite deceptive because often. Like in Canada, um, you know, they they uh, represent to the public that they are using, um, you know, the the, the cutbacks in in some fossil fuel like coal and stuff like that, mm-hmm. and more renewables. But uh, generally, it's often because of uh, nuclear or hydroelectric. Right. And many of the First Nations people have been in the forefront of of opposing the, the big uh, mega dams. And of course, they're you know in, incredibly ruinous in many yeah, ways. Too, um, yeah. You know, in terms of uh, you know releasing mercury and and destroying the soil carbon sink. 
you know. So the idea that hydroelectric is is an antidote, um, Hmm. you know, is is really very, very misleading. Yeah. Um, Well, it's a question of of, of scale, too. I mean, small hydro is one thing, but this huge project, you're right, releasing the mercury from the soil and... Exactly, that's right. Killing the carbon sink. Yeah, and Canada has been, the federal government has been really... Uh, and you know, so negligent and lax in terms of providing health care, providing um, environmental cleanup. You know, the you know to um, indigenous communities where there's been you know documented very severe health effects. Wow. And, but they you know they've promised for years that they do something and then they don't. So, <laughs> no, so silly. But I'll tell you something interesting about Please. dams. I'm just going to insert it here because very few people know about this detail in the um, original climate negotiations. I read about it from, um, there's a group in, in um, Belgium, I think, um, you know, very, very, uh, you know, excellent economic people, investigators and so on, but a mm-hmm. lot of work on the history for instance, of the World Bank. But way back before... Um, you know, before the, uh, uh, at the in 1990, 1991 or so, um, when when the, the international community came together to to try to do something in terms of addressing climate change, and out of that meeting, um, you know, starting with Rio, you know, they they formed the uh, UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and the you know, the Congress of Parties meetings, the media every year and so on. But the World Bank, um, you know, aimed to get control over the finances around uh, around climate. And um, at the same time that these meetings were occurring and, and, you know, the negotiations, um, they were negotiating how to structure this whole thing, Um, the World Bank... um, Received a, com- uh, a report. They were investigating dams, but they received a report that the Narmada Dam in India would displace far more people than than they had estimated. It would displace something like 250,000 people. So they actually suppressed the report um, and, uh, until um, they were appointed as the financial. Um, uh, you know the to 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 be the the, the chief financial organizers and, and authority you know for climate so um so the the world bank continued to fund uh, you know to big mega dams um quite connected with the Bechtel corporation in the united states Jeez. so you know there's all these these uh you know financial machinations mm-hmm. i think need to be, uh, you know, people need to be aware of in terms of, you know, the climate impasse, all the obstruction. Well, one could one could get cynical. After all, uh, Justin Trudeau was elected promising a fresh approach to politics, one based right. on openness, decency, and liberalism. And yet Bechtel and Big Oil seem to have a tremendous amount of power. That's right. And sp- it, with regard to oil, there's oil in the Middle East, Lord knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Libya has come up with regard to, I mean, there's a lot of scandal and, and uh, a lot of energy right now swirling around the uh, uh, Justin Trudeau administration. Uh, in terms of Libya, cabinet ministers mm-hmm. have been quitting in protest over accusations that Justin Trudeau's government tried to influence a criminal case against a Canadian company mm-hmm. accused of bribing the Gaddafi government, the old Libyan government. Jane Pilpot, head of the Treasury, recently quit because she said she was acting on her principles. Mm-hmm. What was that about him? And how at odds with it, with the clean image that Trudeau was elected with? What do we know about... I mean, she said she was, she was acting on principle and that yeah, it's it's tough to do that, but it's tougher to not act on principle. That was very interesting. What's going on there? It is right. Yeah, she, she just resigned. But prior to that, um, Jody Jody Wilson Raybo, who is the Minister of Justice here, 
she's indigenous, uh, one of the first indigenous women, you know, uh-huh. in, uh, in that uh-huh. kind of position in cabinet. Maybe she was the first, I think. Anyway, she was the one who who uh, was is really the one who revealed all of this by refusing to go along uh, and to uh, you know to delay the the investigation and prosecution of the company, which is uh, the name of it is SNC Lavalin. Um, but they've been involved not just with Libya, but uh, their whole history is is. Um, you know, there's a whole history of their bribing, you know, bribing um, a number of uh, com- countries, you know, to, um, you know, to get to have have with business contracts. They're very much similar to, um, you know, in the kinds of things that they do to say, say like Halliburton, but they have contracts with, you know, Saudi Arabia. Um, uh, you know, they they were active in um, Afghanistan, Iraq. Uh, um, yeah, the usual you know, they, suspects. They portray themselves in a way as, as um, you know, supporting development projects. Uh, you know, there's, um, there's still, you know, quite a lot written about, you know, how, how development, you know, is also often connected with, uh, you know, um, nefarious kinds of, of uh, oh, yeah. projects in, in many in many countries. But they've they've uh, had, there's a history that's well documented actually in the major newspaper here and and on the CBC, you know, of their you know bribing, um, you know, Bangladesh, India, oh Tunisia, Angola, and so on. You wow. know. I didn't know that, but I, I guess I, I, well, I am a little bit surprised. If you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive, and our guest today is Judith Deutsch, who's written on uh, Counterpunch about uh, an article entitled Bolsonaro, that's uh, Brazil's dictator, uh, Justin Trudeau et al., exterminators in chief. Just uh, to play a little devil's advocate, Canada is to the north of America. It gets cold. Don't Mm -hmm. people need oil? I mean, isn't it for the common good for the government of Canada to be constantly trying to get uh, affordable oil into Canada? Or is it more just, uh, you know, greasing pockets and, and, you know, money going from hand to hand uh, while nobody's looking? What about the, the need for oil? Doesn't Canada need a lot of oil for the common good? Um, no. <laughs> I guess that's the whole conundrum of, of what to do, you know, in terms of, of energy worldwide, you know. Um, uh, and, of course, there's there's many alternatives, yes. um, you know, that have been spoken about for years, you know, actually... Um, Lyndon Baines Johnson in I think 1966 or 67 or something, and when his State of the Union message talked about climate change, you know, Did he really well, well, has gas emissions and that we have to trans. He used the words transition to renewables. So that's you know that's one thing you know that there's been uh, over like a half a century of talk about shifting to renewables. But there's many, many. Uh, um, I mean, this is something that I've been thinking about, and we'll be writing more about. But there's, uh, you know, so much uh, deception, and and uh, so much is left out in considering what actually can be done. You know, certainly uh, all over the world. You know, there's there's variable. Uh, you know, variable weather situations, and, and so there's there's different needs at different times of the year, obviously. So when it's very very cold here, of course, you know, people need heating. Um, the uses of of I mean, one of the huge problems is that much of the energy, wherever whatever the source is, is used for a lot of inessential kinds of of um, uh, 
and not, and a heavy heavy emitters of heavy users of sure. fuel. And since the 1960s, maybe the early 70s, there really has not been consideration of either eliminating those sectors or drastically reducing them. In fact, the worse the situation gets and the more that's known, um, that the more those, those sectors expand. An example is international aviation. International aviation is exempt under the Kyoto exemption. Uh, uh, the uh, Kyoto Protocol, sure, yeah. so it's not even counted. But it's uh, aviation is a is a huge uh, um, consumer producer of, of uh, you know greenhouse gases, and th- th- it won't be convertible to renewables um, at least for many many decades. But other things. So can. it's just it's just that alone. So the option of either you know. Um, Severely limiting it, aviation to to really essential needs has never been even discussed, and in fact, aviation is you know it's increasing like oh, the yeah. plans to increase it by hundreds of thousands of flights each year. No doubt. You know, the, so that that's just one example. The military again is a, is the oh, single huge. largest um, right. emitter of greenhouse gases. So. And again, that's you know um, there was a remarkable article by Sarah Flounders in 2009 that listeners of the um, this program should should look at because she talked about the um, the fact that at, at the climate meetings that's never been discussed the military exemption yeah. and how much uh-huh. the military emits. Oh, Do you think about you know? individual people's needs for heat um, and where it's absolutely there aren't any other options but using fossil fuels, you know, in some ways you could figure out how to ration it so that people's basic needs are, are taken care of. And the real huge cutbacks would have to come, you know, from these inessential yeah. sectors of the economy. Yeah, the military is huge amounts, and it's just nobody even pays attention to that. That's right. In in your article, you ask, uh, get ready, listeners, for this. Are these arbiters of life on Earth, Trudeau and Bolsonaro et al., and that's interesting to call them arbiters of life on Earth, are they subject to the Nuremberg Laws on individual responsibility with the implication that decision-makers need to be fully informed and not just claim to follow orders? Wow. Talk about that, please. What, what do you mean by that? Well, that's exactly what I mean. Uh, unfortunately, you know, many of the good things in international law and norms, you know, are are really excellent. However, they're never enforced. <laughs> um, but yeah. but certainly the implication is, of course, of course, people are responsible. You know, um, in fact. I think, uh, and then you know, these came out of uh, after World War II, the Nuremberg, and it was it was uh, addressing you know everybody like soldiers, every, you know, at every level. And in fact, I think I think that part of military training is informing people of of this, you know, their their own responsibility. And then it's just pretty much forgotten, you know. I mean, nobody's prosecuted. For for um, you know claiming to not know really, um, uh, so but it's it, it's absolutely uh, um, I, I think it's it's really essential and certainly you know people in in any government at every level of government are are should be held responsible you know like in all these the uh, awful you know. Um, things like you know police brutality or um, you know the situation of water contamination like in in uh, you know Ferguson or uh, in Canada there's been many examples of that just complete negligence and and those people you know in in bureaucracies and so on need to be held responsible um, my my field, of course, uh, is I, I do clinical work with uh, you know children and adults and people of all ages, and uh, you know there's a lot a, a lot 
that's known that people, um, you know, have to be need to be informed, um, can be informed, and can understand. You know, that's where I think it's quite intriguing to me to see that you know that uh, you know none of this knowledge is too esoteric or difficult that people shouldn't know right. you know what what the circumstances are and what's necessary to know in terms of protecting people protecting life yes the as you point out the ostrich defense doesn't right. work hiding one's head and yeah right just to get into a little bit of detail here relative to what we're just talking about you say that Willful disregard for the full facts also applies to the new standards set by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and Congress of Parties of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. Mm -hmm. The 12-year timeline aiming to cap temperature rise at 1.5 degrees centigrade ignores the very dynamics of the climate system and the hegemonic principles espoused in the political economic system. There's a lot to unpack there in that statement. The more times I read it over, the more concerned I became as to the serious flaws that, that you point out. Please take a few minutes to explain what you mean and, and its importance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, again, for a long time, you know, there's been um, <laughs> such limited, constricted thinking about the climate and what to do about it. Um, but these, uh, these, the, and the numbers shift in very uh, deceptive ways. Okay, that that's happened for a long time. Like initially, people measured the rise in temperature from the what they figured was the beginning of the industrial revolution. I mean, there's a lot of a, a lot of historical work on this. That's very interesting. So they were measuring the rise from say like 1780, 1790. Then they shifted <laughs> to the rise from something like 1880, and then more recently it's been 1950. So, so, and then even more recently, there was a people have noticed that there was a sharp rise in in uh, emissions and and an acceleration in temperature rise since 1990. You know. Oh yeah. And uh, so one of the things that uh, one of the very flawed misunderstandings or omissions in, uh, in the calculations from these official bodies is, is uh, this temperature rise and, and uh, concentration of greenhouse gases is a linear process. You know, so that means that if you add, say, like uh, two, to, two parts per million in, in 19, uh, you know, 1990 or something like like that, that that two parts, in, you know, will stay the same, and you can add another two parts the next year, and so you know, it 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 uh, it's, it's added in that sure. in that kind of um, you know simple way, but that's not what happens because the more the more you add, the more it generates. Um, um, uh, more more emissions from sure. other sources outside of what is coming directly from, you know, from uh, human beings. Um, uh, so, for instance, um, water vapor in itself is is a greenhouse gas. So, if you add a, a certain uh, amount of uh, you know of greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and it creates more um, more heat and more water is evaporated, that water vapor in itself will trap more heat. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's, uh, uh, um, and there's many other, that's called an amplifying feedback. Uh, yeah, that's and there's many other ways that the feedbacks are amplified. I guess the, mo- the one that's most well known is the albedo effect. The beetle um, effect? Where the, you, with ice melt in the Arctic, um, because the the white ice reflects heat back into the atmosphere, that if you don't have, uh, if the ice melts because of the slight variation in temperature, then you have the dark ocean, which, you know, which um, no longer reflects back into the atmosphere, 
it will absorb heat. And then the more that, you know, the warmer the ocean becomes, then that will affect the air temperature and so on and so forth. So it's an amplifying process. So all these projections and predictions about, for instance, 1.5 degrees, it's, it's entirely leaving out um, the the effect of the, of the amplifications. And the amplifications now, by this time, are are multiple. And the big danger, you know, that people, are, scientists are very aware of, would be the release of methane, which is, you know, traps. Sure. You know, many, many times, many times more, uh, much more heat than CO2 alone. Mm. And we know, so so that's one thing that's neglected. And the climate modelers um, generally um, haven't taken into account, for instance, the degree of, of, of ice melt from ice sheets, um, um, so, so that's a huge gap in, in what their predictions are. Another thing, you know, a very, very important source of knowledge is from the, the historical record um, from, you know, from tens of millions of years ago they can, they can even look at. That's called the paleoclimate yes. record, which shows the correlation of the concentration of greenhouse gases with, you know, with other processes. So, for instance, the um, the number 350 parts per million, there's uh-huh. the, the organization 350.org, sure. yes. 350 parts per million um, plus, plus uh, you know, uh, or minus, well, plus prob- uh, Hansen, the major climate scientist who looks at this, they say between 350, uh, 350 and 450 parts per million um, will lead Inevitably, to the melting of all ice on mm. the planet, including Antarctica, which is the, of course, would result in many, many different things, but certainly in a huge um, rise in sea level. Oh, yeah. um, so this, all this information is not taken into account in the in the projections and the predictions by the sure. Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, mm-hmm. and not by the UN framework. So at this point, the idea that you know that there's a carbon budget that we can uh-huh. release, we can emit you know um, thousands of tons more CO2, is is really you, you know d- so ludicrously evil, <laughs> sure. you know because because inevitably it's going to um, it's it, it's inevitable. That, that all the the ice will melt. We don't know how long, but it's inevitable. It's inevitable then that sea level will rise. They're saying what um, as much as uh, just in this one century, three to five meters, and so there's going to be well, mass, mass mass displacement of people. Yeah. Yeah. These things are inevitable. But it's so far it's so far down the road it seems like oh let's just hide our heads in the sand exactly <laughs> exactly and it's just shocking because uh, you know the fate of billions of people is really you know really at stake and and, and on the political end you know things yes. just get worse and worse well that's and I wanted to get back to the politics and power aspect at the mm-hmm. root of these matters. It really is at the root of these matters. You're right. At the base is the belief that we can all be commodified and monetized. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? And what is wrong with that belief? Well, it's incredibly wrong. <laughs> and it's, in a way, it's, um, I guess this is what came from Marx, you know, that he, uh, you know, in in his uh, I, one is his, his concept of exchange value. You know, money mm-hmm. is um, money creates um, some kind of a way of measuring what you know what worth is, so that you could compare really very very different kinds of things and reduce it to you know to measure a measurement by this one this one kind of uh, in a monetary way, the other, the so there's this this distortion in in how um, in value, you know, and how things are valued. But there's also the distortion that things can be owned, you know. 
Um, mm. So it, it, to me, it, it results in, in a really psychotic system, <laughs> <laughs> you know, where, again, corporations are considered people, a person. Right. Um, but people are considered not people in a way, <laughs> you know. And I, I, one example is in the whole area of military spending, you know, that, that uh, so I fault, I fault the comparisons that people make in terms of military spending because that, and I, I hope that this is comprehensible, but I think that that commodifies people. The military is is um, a sector of human activity that deals in killing people. Yes. It's death. You know, that's what the military is. That's their business. It has to do with killing people. Of course, uh, in the psychotic reversal, you know, it gets connected with saving people, providing security. But, you know, you just look at any period in history, certainly the current, and is totally connected with killing. So if you compare the cost of the military with something like the cost of providing health care and education, how do you compare <laughs> killing a person with, you know, with helping a person? How could you commodify and monetize a person's life? It is pretty amazing, but you go into some interesting history relative to the definition of the word liberalism. It has many interpretations. Now, uh, what was that? I couldn't hear you. Li liberalism has many interpretations, and and uh, Justin Trudeau is seen as a classic liberal, but in the more accurate and expansive definition, Margaret Thatcher, as you point out, mm. was also a liberal. In the fascist and Stalinist word world, the individual people are far down, subordinate to the needs and wishes of the state. You cite interesting examples in English literature of similar devaluing of mere human needs and wishes in comparison to the dominance of other values. This is part of liberalism. So I wonder if you could specify some of these examples of liberal values and how they relate to the power politics in the world of money and government relative to saving the planet. What Jonathan Schell called the exterminism, exterminism right. of liberal civilization. This was fascinating. Perhaps you could start with what you call the anti-human monetizing underside of enlightenment thinking of Jonathan Swift's 18th century, a modest proposal. Mm -hmm. That has long fascinated me. I, this is not off topic. I wonder if you could uh, go into that a little bit and how, you know, that carries forward and, and, and sort of hangs over all this. Yeah. Well, you know what? It's, it's complicated. I'm, I really try to figure this out and I can't give a short explanation because no, I don't have one. I think... Because I think there's many aspects of it, but I think um, I'll start off with with Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> you know her her famous statement that there's no such thing as society, <laughs> that there's only individuals. Right. You know, right. and I, that came very much out of the British thinkers in the Enlightenment too. You know that um, the, I guess the extreme example would be like John Locke. That you know people are born, their minds are a blank screen, so that, uh, y you know, that each, y you're not born into a society that, re you know, somehow relationships and so on aren't as, uh, aren't, aren't critical. Um, so this is something, you know, it's a view of, of, of psychology in a sense, and, and it, you know, it's a view that ha that becomes so distorted, and uh, you know that there's actually I, find, I like reading about some of the the early neoliberals, the primary neoliberals um, like von Hayek and so on. You know where property, um, you know the the that owning something, having something, each individual possessing something. You know, becomes the the idea of mm. of of how people function. You know, mm -hmm. it doesn't have to do really. You you're not who you are because of your relationships and and how, you know, you're caring or you're dependent and so on on other people, um, but just on on really basically what you have, and. Um, 
so this uh, this kind of I I find it very interesting because you know thinking about in in um, English literature, <laughs> you know I gave some examples from that how. It's so interesting that that a theme so much in the literature has to do with um, orphans or, yes. or you know, um, you know, people who are taking uh, parents who, for some reason or another, disappear even often before the story even starts. You know, or, or terribly cruel people, terribly cruel parents, or cruel society. You know, like that's certainly a big thing in in uh, Charles Dickens' work. Um, and and to sacrifice that for the common good that was interesting back in uh, a modest proposal. I know uh, Jonathan Swift was you know it's a it's really quite a remarkable and brilliant work and I, you know it speaks to his you know his uh, awareness of this uh, total yeah well of course racism because it's the British race racism against the Irish oh, yes. and the anti you know Catholicism and stuff. But that you would turn children into a commodity, yes. <laughs> you know, deal with a population question by by eating the children, selling them to rich people. Hey, what the know? heck? Um, <laughs> and it so seems, it, it, I remember reading that, you know, a hundred years ago, and just uh, it seems so crazy, but it fits. I, you know, it kind of fits in. I mean, obviously he was, uh, it was satire, but it, satire shows some truth. I know you got to run to teach a class, but I just wanted to ask, politically in Canada, okay, he, uh, Pierre Trudeau, Justin Trudeau, geez, did it again, mm-hmm. uh, is, is seen as sort of a liberal. Is there an environmental democratic pushback that, that's, that's coming up? Is there hope for making some changes on this and, you know, kicking out the old guys? Well, you know what? That's such a, an important question. I think it's an important question really worldwide, you know, yes, because there's so is. little really excellent leadership. I, I think that these new, relatively newer movements in Canada, you know, there's Idle No More, which is really, you know, indigenous. And yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's started by women. And I think a lot of these more radical, um, uh, you know, understandings and actions right now seem to be from women, you know, uh, um, like Black Lives Matter, Idle mm-hmm. No More, um, the Me Too movement and so on. Um, certainly, that's not to say that women are inherently <laughs> any any sharper or anything. But but I think that this is really quite quite promising and hopeful. Um, good. You know, I think you, you're beginning to see that in the states too, yes, with absolutely. the new members in, in Congress. Yes. Yes, absolutely. There's some really good people coming up. There's um. Uh, here in Canada, very you know, there's a lot of good people. I would say, you sure. know, uh, I think the problem is is that is that people worldwide and within different jurisdictions and so on have to just really unite together and yes. become much more um, radical in their demands and in their actions. Well, we I think that we've become the, pretty. The dangers are so severe now that yes. it's really necessary. Well, it's it's pretty radical, you know, masquerading as as normal. And I'll say one good thing Trump has done is he's gotten people like uh, Alex Alexandra Ocasio Cortez elected. Who exactly, might been That's so right. Before. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I, I know you have to run. Very very yeah. interesting. Good luck. Uh, and uh, it's always good to hear a sense of optimism. Okay. Well, thank you very much for all your work. Well, thank you. We're all in it together. Thank you. And here's a little ditty about uh, somebody like uh, Justin Trudeau. There's a new guy in town. He's been dragging around. He's the figure of you. And his eyes are so blue. And they're looking at KBU Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBU in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBU Community Radio's open meeting policy is available by calling the station at 503-231-8032. 
Meetings will be held at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue in Portland. The Personnel Committee will meet on the second Monday of each month at 6 p.m. Good evening. This is KBOO Portland. It's 659. And coming up next, Rising Up with Sonali. Sonali Kohatkar talks to Marxist economist Richard Wolff about his new book, Understanding Marxism. KPFK Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is Rising Up with Sonali, and I'm your host, Sonali Kolhatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com. In today's news headlines, President Donald Trump's former attorney and fixer Michael Cohen returns to Capitol Hill on Wednesday for a fourth day of testimony in front of the House Intelligence Committee. The hearing will take place behind closed doors and is likely to focus on Russian interference and Trump's finances. Also possibly being raised is the issue of presidential pardons and whether Trump administration officials dangled a potential pardon to Cohen when he was first in the special counsel's crosshairs. Meanwhile, in New York, the state's Department of Financial Services has issued subpoenas for Trump's insurance brokers on Tuesday. The move was unrelated to other investigations and indicates that Trump's finances in New York are also under scrutiny. The Washington Post summarized that Tuesday was a case study in Trump's new reality of besiegement as multiplying investigations by state authorities, federal investigators, and